Please take out your copy of God's Word. Begin turning to Philippians chapter 3. This morning we're going to be looking at verses 17 through 21. And remember that the chapter numbers, all the numbers that you see in your copy of the Word, are not inspired. Those came hundreds of years later. They're not always perfect and in the right spot. So 4-1 actually better goes with the verses before it. So this morning we're going to look at 3.17 into 4 verse 1. You can find that on the bottom of page 981. And then finally on to page 982 in the Pew Bible. It is great to be back with you all. Thursday was our 10th anniversary, so we're pretty excited about that. That's not very long for some of you, but that feels pretty long for us. God has been very good and gracious to us. We had a wonderfully blessed opportunity to get away together for a whole week with no kids. We've never done that before, and it was great. We got to enjoy time together. We got to enjoy God's creation in a particularly beautiful spot. So it was a real blessing. We missed our girls. We missed you guys. I missed preaching. So let's get back to it. I'm a low energy person. I store up all of my energy just for this time. So when there's two weeks of that, you're in for a lot. So I'm, I'm excited. I apologize in advance, but let's get into it. We've been away from Philippians for a week. So let's take a moment to reorient ourselves. Look back again at verses 8 and verse 10. Knowing Christ. What is it that you count as being of surpassing worth? What is the most important thing to you? What is life for you? What are you living for? For Paul, we've seen that the answer to all of those questions is Christ and the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, his Lord. How can, a Paul, how can Paul, a mere man and a sinner at that, the chief of sinners, he says himself, how can he know Christ? How can he know the perfect, holy, righteous Christ? Verse 9, it's precisely because of the righteousness of Christ. Not only is Christ righteous, but Christ also gives righteousness. Our righteous God requires righteousness to be in relationship with him. We don't have it. None of us are good. None of us are righteous. But Christ is. So in chapter 2, verses 5 through 11, we see the righteous Christ who becomes a man to live and die in our place, fulfilling all righteousness. He comes to represent us. He comes to perfectly keep the law for us. He comes to fully pay the penalty that we owe for us. And in so doing, he gives to us his righteousness. So visitors, non-Christians, welcome. But this is the part that you most need to know. We're going to talk a lot about what we are called to do. Lots of commands. Here's how a Christian lives his life. Don't hear me saying, do these things so that you can be saved. These things are contingent first upon you knowing Christ, which is a gift of God's grace. Uh, the Savior who has come to die so that we may live. So we don't earn our righteousness. We don't work our way to God. We are counted righteous. We are treated as if we were righteous all by grace through faith in Christ. That's how Paul can know Christ. He first has to have this righteousness from God that depends not on himself, but on Christ. That's based not upon works, but on his faith. He is justified, as we just sang, by grace and grace alone. And so Paul knows Christ. Then verse 10, all of that righteousness as a gift is so that he may know Christ. 
So he knows in one way, and he desires to know, and to know more in another. And Paul explains that at the end of verse 10 as becoming like him. And so, we looked at that a couple of weeks ago, and I want to emphasize how important those two phrases are. Those two phrases could be the sum and substance of the Christian life, knowing Christ and becoming like him. Knowing Christ and becoming like him. That's what this is all about. That is why we are here, or at least why we should be here. This is what it means to be a Christian, to know Christ and then to become like him. And so then we looked at that last time in terms of pursuing Christ. Paul has told us to press on. He knows that he has not yet obtained all this. He's not yet perfect. He's not yet perfectly like Christ, the Christ that he so passionately loves. And so he presses on to know him more. And he encourages us to do the same. So we looked a few weeks ago at the Christian life as the imperfect but passionate pursuit of Christ. That's what our whole life is to be about. That's what we were created for. And so Paul wants to help us understand what that looks like and so encourage us on. So we're picking back up on this command to press on. We're still looking at the nature of the Christian life. What's it really look like? How do we press on? Well, last time we saw the importance of thinking, verse 15, think this way. We're going to see that again. He sums everything up in chapter 4, verse 8, telling us to think about these things. But we also saw that it doesn't stop with thinking. 4, verse 9, obviously follows 4, verse 8. What you have learned and received and heard and seen in me, practice these things. Think and now do. Or think, chapter 3, verse 15, chapter 3, verse 17, walk. Think, and now walk. But specifically, Paul is going to tell us to watch those who walk. And he's going to warn us to watch out for those who do not walk. Or let's put the sermon today like this. Here's the sermon. Press on. We're still talking about press on. How? Press on. By watching those who pursue Christ, by watching out for those who pursue self, by walking as citizens of heaven, and by waiting for Christ. Watch, watch out, walk, wait. That's how you press on. That's how you live the Christian life. We've seen Paul's way of thinking. Now we're going to see more Paul's way of living. Remember, belief always demonstrates itself in Behavior, right thinking, leads to right living. Last time was the Christian life as imperfect, passionate pursuit of Christ. This week we're looking more at the how of that. How do we imperfectly but passionately pursue Christ? The Christian life is more than believing some things about Jesus. It is what we've just said. It is a life. It's an entire way of life. It is to walk in a certain way. It is to live a manner of life worthy of the gospel. God saves us, and then he changes us. Well, let's see what that looks like. Let's see uh, what it means to um, together pursue Christ. This is how to do that. Let me read the passage for you first, starting in Philippians chapter 3, verse 17, uh, reading on to uh, chapter 4, verse number 1. You can find that on page 981 in the Pew Bible. 
Let me read for you Philippians chapter 3, verse 17. This is what God wants to say to you today. Brothers, join in imitating me and keep your eyes on those who walk according to the example you have in us. For many of whom I have often told you and now tell you even with tears, walk as enemies of the cross of Christ. Their end is destruction. Their God is their belly. And they glory in their shame with minds set on earthly things. But our citizenship is in heaven. And from it we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body to be like his glorious body by the power that enables him even to subject all things to himself. Therefore, my brothers, whom I love and long for, my joy and crown, stand firm thus in the Lord, my beloved. If you would, bow with me and let's begin with a word of prayer. Father, we pray as we have just sung, show us Christ. Father, reveal now your great glory and reveal it through the preaching of your word. We thank you through your, for your word. We thank you that it's living and active. We thank you that it, it saves and that it, it sanctifies, it shapes, it, it transforms. Father, speak to us now through your word. Father, help me. Father, all my preparation apart from you is worth nothing. We ask now for your spirit to come and to work on our hearts. Make us attentive listeners. Father, help both the preaching of your word and the hearing of your word. Show us Christ and use this time to grow our love for him and to make us more like him. We ask and we pray this in his name. Amen. All right, point number one. We press on and we pursue Christ by watching those who pursue Christ. In verse 17, Paul gives a command. Not a suggestion, but a command. He does do this, imitate me. Back in verse 10, we've just seen Paul's great desire to become like Christ. And we've been looking at the process by which that happens. Paul has been telling us that he desires to take more fully hold of the Christ who has already fully taken hold of him. Be like Christ, he says. And we saw the main way that you do that is by setting your mind on Christ, by looking to Christ, by meditating on Christ. That's how we imitate Christ. And now, further, to help us in our pursuit of Christ and Christ's likeness, he's going to direct our attention not just upward, but outward. And Paul knows our frailty. He knows the weakness of our flesh. He knows that we need not just abstract encouragement, but concrete example. And so he continues his call to press on in the pursuit of Christ by pointing us to people as examples, both positive and negative. He's going to say, look at these guys, be like them. Also, don't look at these guys, don't be like them. Keep your eyes on, keep your eyes off. Duplicate, deny, follow, flee, watch, watch out. So we're starting with the watch. Paul's first says, watch me. He says this a number of times. He says the same thing in 1 Corinthians 11, 11, 1, the imitators of me as I am of Christ. So we pursue Christ by setting our mind on Christ. And one of the most important ways that we set our mind on Christ is also by setting our mind on those who best set their mind on Christ. We follow those who best follow Christ. And so many times in his letters, Paul says, follow me. 
But this one I think is unique because of what it follows. He has just said three times in verses 12 through 13 that he's not perfect. And right now on the heels of that, he says, imitate me. Follow me, not because I'm perfect, but because I'm pursuing perfection. I'm pursuing Christ. This again destroys any notion of the possibility of Christian perfection. That's not biblical. Paul has been very clear. I'm not already perfect. Not that I've already obtained this. I'm not yet fully like Christ, but yet still so imitate me. Imitate me in my imperfect, passionate pursuit. King James says, if you're looking at the King James, it says, be followers of me. And it should be pretty self-explanatory. Followers do what the leader does. One of my favorite Disney movies is the super old Peter Pan cartoon. Besides one really racist song, it's actually really a good movie. It came out in 1953. It's the year before my father was born. It's an old movie. But one of the songs of the movie, the good one, that was frequently stuck in my head for decades is titled Following the Leader. I think my mom used to always sing this to us to try to get us to do uh, what she was doing. So it goes, we're following the leader, the leader, the leader. We're following the leader wherever he may go. Anyone know that song? Yeah, a few of you. Then it goes, we won't be home till morning, till morning, till morning. We won't be home till morning because he told us so. That's the song. That's what I grew up in my head. It's simple, but it's actually pretty profound. It's simple, but it's pretty contrary to the spirit of our age today. They, the lost boys, are following their leader. What does that mean? It means going wherever he goes. They won't be home till morning. Well, why not? Well, simply because he told us so. That's it. It's so simple. But that's what it means to follow. It's to do what the one you are following says and does. So Paul says, follow me. Imitate me. Do what I am doing. Go where I am going. Matthew 10, 25, Jesus says, It is enough for the disciple to be like his teacher and the servant like his master. This is so important. It's so simple, but it's so important today because we've lost this in much of 21st century evangelicalism. It's discipleship is likeness. It's that, it's that simple. Discipleship is likeness. So most basically, to be a disciple of Jesus is to be like Jesus. Again, as we've seen already, not perfectly, but definitely progressively like Jesus. You simply cannot claim to believe in Christ and not actually follow Christ. And you cannot claim to follow Christ and not actually begin to increasingly do what he says and be like he is. And so we look at him which means we read the word to see what he is like. But our God is so good and gracious, so aware of our infirmities, that he gives us more help. He gives us each other. He gives us godly saints who have gone before us and who have progressed beyond us. And he commands us to watch them and to imitate them. This is a great gift that he has given to us. And so, as we are to set our spiritual eyes on Christ by faith, we are also to set our physical eyes on others by sight, by observation. Watching others is one of the main ways that we pursue Christ. Our culture currently is marked by what has been called an obsessive focus on expressive individuality. It's one of the main things that characterizes the spirit of the age. Expressive individuality. But the whole thing's a farce. 
Because we are all of us far more shaped by those around us than we would ever like to admit. We are all of us actually little more than a mashup of various inspiring influences that we imitate. And that's actually a good thing because that's how we were designed and wired to work. We are created in the image of God. We are created to be like him. We are created in the image of the triune relational God. And thus we were created to be relational, oriented around, informed by and influenced by one another. We all of us seek to be like the people that we love and respect and look up to. It's just that's what we are. You are some weird mix of people that you are seeking to imitate either implicitly or explicitly. I want to pastor and love people like Ed Moore. Uh, I want to counsel people and know the word like Mike Moultrie. I end all my emails with the tagline grace because my father ends all his emails with the tagline of grace. I've recently been introducing the reading of our text at the beginning of the sermon by saying this is what God wants to say to you today. I used to say, this is God's word, which is good and true. But I've been listening a lot to my brother-in-law, Jeff, and he says, this is what God wants to say to you today. And I love that. I love what that expresses. I love the, the, the clarity with which it says, God is speaking to you now through his word. I want to be like him, so I stole what he says. We are all of us in various ways, made up of various imitations of the people that we watch and respect. And it should be no different in our pursuit of Christ. We need examples. We've got Paul. We've got his 13 or 14 letters. Uh, Philippians 3 has been so convicting to me because as I meditate on the example of Paul in great detail and see how short of that example I fall, I then desire to strive and be more like him, to imitate him more. But it's not just Paul that we are called to imitate because he goes on. He gives us more. Look at the second part of verse 17. Imitate me. We read his word. We, we learn and copy and follow him and those who walk according to the example you have in us. There's, just, there's no arrogance in Paul. If I was Paul, I would be the most arrogant person in the world. No, he says, imitate my imperfectly uh, but passionate pursuit of Christ. But he doesn't say only imitate me. It's all about me. No, he says imitate anyone who so walks and pursues Christ in this way. He says, look around you. Watch. Observe. Find those who are older than you. Find those who are spiritually older than you. And watch how they walk. Learn from them. Pattern yourself after them. And listen, be intentional about this. Seek someone out. Ask them if you can meet with them. Uh, talk with them. In this day and age, if we have a question about how to do something, what do we do? We, we Google it. What if we actually got back to the biblical practice of asking one another? What if I didn't know what to do with my kids? And so instead of Googling it, I asked one of you older godly saints who have already raised uh, a bunch of kids. What if we were a little bit less concerned with the world at large and everything out there or the online Christian world and the evangelical superstars? And what if we more set our minds intentionally on this local church, on those that God has specifically and sovereignly brought to us and covenanted together into this body? And that's pretty cool if you think about it. 
We're far from a perfect church led by far from imperfect elders. Wait, far from perfect elders. Excuse me. The pride's coming out there. Far from perfect elders. We, all of us, have things that we'd change and would do differently. But God has specifically and sovereignly brought together the people that he, in his perfect wisdom, wants to be part of Woodside Community Church. That's really neat. We're not perfect, but we're his. Delight in that fact. Look at those around you and be thankful for them. Don't lament what we do not have. Rejoice in what we in God's sovereignty do have. And then seek to know and then to bless and to be blessed by those that God has purposefully placed around you. I love thinking about that. I, I remind myself every Sunday when it's a smaller crowd and I want to give up and be like, oh no, there's less people here. I don't matter. Nothing's not right or wrong. I remind myself, this crowd, see, 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 every single one of you, specifically, sovereignly ordained by God to be here this morning in his good and perfect wisdom. He's doing what he wants to do here at Woodside Community Church. And it's a beautiful thing that he's creating and that we have together. And the main point I want to, stru- uh, to emphasize is that you need other people. Here they are. God has surrounded you with other people. So you pursue Christ in large part by observing others' pursuit of Christ. Get to know them. Ask them what they do and how. Ask them, hey, I, don't, I mean, I don't like the word quiet time or whatever you want to call it. Devotional time, your time with the Lord. Hey, ask somebody, hey, what do you do? How do you spend time with the Lord? What does that look like specifically for you? And, and learn from them. At Shameless small groups plug. This obviously requires that we be around each other more than an hour every week. This command is impossible with minimum Sunday morning church attendance. Paul expects that we are together, involved in one another's lives. You can't imitate someone that you don't see and that you don't know. Paul expects that we're present and active, knowing one another. Imitation requires presence. So find some avenue to be with and among the people of God outside of this gathering. This gathering is good. It's central. It's foundational. But it was never meant to be everything. You need others. And you need them more than an hour a week. So come Wednesday night to Bible study. Uh, get to one of the small groups for prayer and fellowship. And please stay after at 1245 upstairs to, to pray together. And you get to know your brothers and sisters as you then pray for one another. Or come talk to me about setting something up one-on-one with me or with someone else in the church. Pursue Christ by watching Christians. And watching Christians requires that you know and be with Christians. And listen, included in that, by the way, something to be aware of, Christians, other people are watching you. They are observing how you live your life. I don't mean to say that in some sort of big brother, you better watch out, you better not shout kind of thing. No, but just stating a basic fact, we watch and observe each other. You guys watch and observe how I try to parent uh, my children. I'm watching you guys and, and how you parent your children to see what I can learn. Uh, done in the right spirit, with humility, not pride, we are doing this not to catch one another messing up, but because this is how we were wired to learn from each other, from not just instruction, but imitation. So watch others 
and be aware that other people are watching you. We learn from observing one another. So ask yourself today, who am I imitating? And also ask yourself, am I someone that others can imitate? Who am I imitating? And am I someone that I would want others to imitate? Am I someone that I would want my daughters to look at and imitate and be like? Watch those who pursue Christ. But that's not all. That's just the first one. Uh, point number two. One number two. Watch out now for those who pursue self. Look at verses 18 and 19. For many of whom I have often told you and now tell you even with tears, walk as enemies of the cross of Christ. Their end is destruction. Their God is their belly. And they glory in their shame with minds set on earthly things. All right, first question is, who are these people that, that Paul is warning us about? There's actually a lot of debate about this. I'm not entirely sure. Remember, we've already been warned about some people up in verse 2. Remember, we saw the Judaizers up in verse 2, the, the dogs, the evildoers. Why were they so bad? Acts 15, 1. They were teaching, unless you are circumcised according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. And so the question is, are the people in verses 18 and 19 the same as the people in verse 2? The simplest answer is just yes, because Paul gives us no introduction or indication that he's shifting to a new group. He's told us clearly in verse 2 who he's warning about, so maybe he's warning us of the same people um, later on. But I actually lean towards, and I'm not entirely sure, but I lean towards it not being the same group. Remember, the Judaizers were all about the law. They were teaching that to be a Christian, to be right with God, you needed Jesus, but you also needed to keep the law of Moses. Or you needed to do something, which is what many churches are still teaching today. Yes, you need Jesus, but here are these other things that you got to do to make sure you're actually a Christian. So they said you got to keep the law. And that was all summed up um, in, in circumcision. So in some way, they're teaching that you can be right with God through law keeping. They were then legalists, right? Law. And that's what sets Paul off. That's why he writes chapter 3. And then his beautiful description of the gospel and the fact that we are right with God. We are righteous not by law keeping, not by anything that we do, but the righteousness given to us from God as a gift through faith in Christ. But then looking at verses 18 and 19, these guys don't seem to quite fit the legalist bill. They almost seem to, to be the opposite. Instead of teaching the importance of law keeping, they seem to disregard the law entirely. They are maybe saying, since my salvation has nothing to do with my doing, my doing doesn't matter at all, I can then do whatever I want. So instead of the legalists, these guys maybe sound more like what are called the antinomians. Again, it's just a fancy word that means no law or against law. Now, legalist, law, anti-legalist, no law. Regardless, whoever they are specifically, Paul tells us what we need to know about them and what we need to watch out for. And I think it's best summed up in the second phrase of verse 19. Look at there. He says, here's who they are. Their God is their belly. Now, that doesn't mean that they like to eat. 
Paul's not warning us about gluttony per se. He's not talking particularly about food. The NASB translates this word appetites. Their, their God is their appetite. Same word is used in Romans 16, 18. Paul again is warning us to watch out, specifically for those who cause division. There are a few things that Paul takes more seriously than false teaching in the church and then division in the church. And so there's no one that Paul is more opposed to than those who pursue those two things. He describes these people further in verse 18 of Romans 16. For such persons do not serve our Lord Christ, but their own appetites. Right? Same word as our passage. So metaphorically, this word refers not to physical hunger, but sensual lusts. When we hear the word lust, and we automatically think sex, and it includes that, but it's much more than that. This is the worship of what feels right and what feels good. This is the worship of what brings pleasure. And man, is, is that not the prevailing pattern of this world? Isn't that what we are constantly being encouraged to do and pursue? If it feels good, it is good. If it makes you happy, well then do it. Pursue it. If you have an appetite for it, or tweaking Paul's terminology, if you're attracted to it, well then it must be good. I was doing some reading recently, and I came across the APA, the American Psychological Association's definition of sexual orientation. Here's how they define what sexual orientation is. They say it's an enduring pattern of emotional, romantic, and or sexual attractions. Sexual orientation also refers to a person's sense of identity based on those attractions. Listen, that definition is perfect. You see what they're saying there? Make sure you hear, make sure you hear me correctly here. They define orientation as an enduring pattern of attraction or appetite. And then they call that attraction an identity. They say that if you desire something over and over and over again, you are then oriented to that something, and you are then identified by that something. There's, it's so interesting because that's so spot on, yet so tragically wrong at the same time. Because they're recognizing how important and formative our desires are. And they're, they're correct about that. But they're terribly wrong and the assumption that all those desires, just because they exist, must then be automatically right and good. Their definition is, is chapter 3, verse 19. Their God, that which is most important to them, is their belly. That which they desire, that which they are attracted to, that which they have an appetite for. They're saying, identify yourself by whatever that thing is. And then do whatever you can to get that thing. And again, listen, this isn't just about sexual orientation or sex. That's just a particularly relevant example of the general principle that Paul is giving us here. And this is the definition of worldliness. This is the definition of what defines our culture. And worldliness is a word that we don't use in the church much anymore. We find it a quaint and dated idea today, but it's a word that Christians in ages past found very relevant. Paul is saying here, watch out for worldliness. Well, what is that? Well, look at the end of verse 19, because this is what it is. 
This further explains what it means that their God is their belly. They have their minds set on earthly things. So worldliness is a mindset. Worldliness is, using our culture's terms today, worldliness is an orientation. It is an enduring pattern of attraction for the things of the world. It means to love the world. It means to desire the world. It means to find yourself at home in the world, to live for the world, to be identified by the world, to, to look like it, and to act like the world. Oh, hey, what's, what's wrong with that? 1 John 2.15 is what is wrong with that. John says, do not love the world or the things in the world. Direct command. Don't love it. Why not? If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. Uh-oh. All right, so it's either one or the other. It's either love for the world or love for God. Why? Verse 16. For all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh... Sounds like the God is the belly thing. And the desires of the eyes and the pride of life is not from the Father, but is from the world. And the world is passing away along with its desires. But whoever does the will of God abides forever. That's why don't love the world. Because the world here, in this sense, is not the world of, of creation, but world in the sense of all that is opposed to God. All that is in prideful rebellion against him. You cannot love that which is opposed to God and God at the same time. If you love the world, you do not love God. As we just saw, discipleship is likeness. So if you are like the world, well then you are not like God. And thus you do not love God and thus you do not know God. Paul is giving us a very relevant warning today. Watch out for those who pursue self. But since it's their belly that is their God, that which rules them, that which they worship and serve, ultimately then, whatever specific form this takes, it is their self that they are truly pursuing and their own appetites and their own pleasures. Say, watch out for that. Say, watch out for the world. The world is very appealing. Sin is very Appealing. The power of sin is the promise of pleasure. The sin is promising pleasure. It's saying you'll get this if you do this and follow this. That's what it means to have your belly as your God. It is to seek pleasure, fulfillment, identity in the pursuit of self, in the pursuit of present, the present, in the pursuit of instant gratification. And left unchecked, this becomes our God. It becomes our divine authority. This is where our, our mind is set. And that's why Paul keeps talking about the mind. Again, he'll do it again in chapter 4, verse 8. That's why he characterizes these dangerous people as those whose minds are set on earthly things, on self. Your mind is either set on Christ or it's set on self. And we've got an entirely different focus here. Downward and inward is the focus of the world. Upward and outward is the focus of Scripture. You need to always be asking yourself, what future is there in the object of my devotion? What future is there for you in the object of your devotion? What will come of what you are most pursuing? What happens when you get it? Can it deliver what you are holding out and hoping that it will deliver? Can it satisfy you? And when it doesn't, 
What's next? Where is your mind set? What are you focused on? What are you pursuing? Who honestly is your God? Paul is saying, Christian, be very wary and be very aware of those who pursue self. This is the spirit of the age, and this spirit has crept in to the church. These are those who are telling you to do what you want, uh, to follow your heart. If you feel it's good, it must be good. Go and pursue and do what you want. Paul's saying, actually, watch out for that, because the heart is sick. It is deceitful. None are righteous, right? He's telling us the opposite. Do not follow your heart. Watch out for those who are telling you uh, to do this. Watch out for those who are not pursuing Christ, but who are pursuing self. Number three. These last two will be shorter. Number three. Watch, watch out, walk as citizens of heaven. Look at verse 20. He says, but our citizenship is in heaven. Stop there. Over and over again, we've seen how belief determines behavior and how what we think determines how we live. And an important part of what it is that you think is what you think and believe about your identity, where you think and believe you are from, where you consider your home. I, was work I worked on the sermon before our trip and was coming back and I was anticipating Landing at Dallas-Fort Worth yesterday afternoon, going through customs and immigration. I was really banking on the guy after he looks at the passport and takes off the glasses and he checks. And he looks at us, he puts a stamp on it. I was really anticipating him saying, welcome home. That's what they're supposed to do. He didn't do it. Uh, so he ruined my illustration, so I had to delete it. Um, but listen, we were out of the country. We were out of our country. By God's grace and a wonderful gift, we got to go to Mexico and had a lot of fun in Mexico. It was a perfect week. But Mexico is not our home. The United States is our home. Zooming in, North Carolina is not our home. New York is our home. New York City is our home. Not Manhattan, that's not our home. Queens is our home. Not Bayside, Woodside is our home. This, this is our home. We most wanted to get back to our girls, our physical family, and to you guys, our spiritual family. Because this is our home. And where you consider and find your home profoundly shapes your life. Paul wants you to recognize and live in light of your true citizenship. Paul wants you to watch out for those who pursue self and set their mind on earthly things on the world because Christians are not of the world. Remember 1 Peter, we did it like two years ago, the first verse. He identifies us as elect exiles. Chapter 2, verse 11, he urges us as sojourners, as aliens, and exiles. This is not our home. We are not supposed to be at home here. So much of our struggles and anxieties, I think some of mine, are because I'm so desperate to make this my home and make it feel like I'm comfortable and belong and fit in here. Well, Paul is telling us that we're not supposed to be comfortable here. We're not supposed to be like here. Remember what Paul wants ultimately to do in chapter 1, verse 23? He wants to die. He wants to depart. Why? Because that means being with Christ. And he says that is far better. Because that's Paul's home. 
Christ is the Christian's home. He is our identity. Our citizenship is in heaven. Again, heaven is Christ. The point of heaven is Christ. Though uh, that's where we're supposed to find our homes ultimately, though for a time we find ourselves here. And this is a perfectly relevant illustration for the Philippians because Philippi, the city, though a city in Greece, was actually a Roman colony. That means the people, though living in Greece, were Roman citizens. They were governed by Roman law. They had Roman customs, Roman dress. You can even see some of the Roman architecture. They lived in Philippi, but they had the great privilege of being citizens of Rome. That's a perfect illustration of the Christian life. Watch out for those who are like the world because Christians are not like the world. By definition, it's not who we are. It's not our home. Christ is. And so, so much of the trend in the churches today, which is to be so like the world, let's be like them so they'll see how normal we are, um, so that we can be relevant and they can come in and fit in and be comfortable, is the exact opposite of what we're actually commanded to be and do in Scripture. We're not like the world. And so, in encouraging you, in telling you how to live the Christian life, how to imperfectly but passionately pursue Christ, Paul wants you to know who you are. He wants you to begin first by considering yourself a citizen of Christ. And then to start to live like that. To to walk as such a citizen. Or as we've already seen in chapter 1, verse 27, where he says to let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ. If you peek over at that verse in the ESV, you'll see the little footnote one there. And you'll see that down at the bottom of the page where that could be translated as only behave as citizens worthy of the gospel. That's because it's the same Greek word there that we have in chapter 4, verse 20. Citizenship determines conduct. Citizenship determines conduct. Paul wants you to know who you are and then walk like it and then live like it. Remember, discipleship is likeness. The citizens that you most imitate are an indication of the citizenship that you possess. Who are you most like? And I want to say that again. The citizens that you most imitate are an indication of the citizenship that you possess. So who are you most looking at? Who are you most pursuing? Who are you most uh, copying and imitating? What are you watching? What are you desiring? Which kingdom is that person or that thing a citizen of? Paul says, pursue Christ by watching, by watching out, and then by walking and living like Christ. And then finally and quickly, number four, he says, wait for Christ. Back to verse 20. Look at 20 again. Our citizenship is in heaven, and from it we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body to be like his glorious body by the power that enables him even to subject all things to himself. that That should be a whole sermon right there. We don't have time. But consider the question that we posed back in point two. What future is there in the object of your devotion? That thing that you long and live for, love and live for, that thing that you are pursuing, what hope is there in it? Is there a future for you in it? 
Look at the future that is in store for you in Christ. He will return. He has told us, I will never leave you or forsake you. 1 Thessalonians 4, 16, Paul tells us, For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a cry of command. As he ascended, we see at the beginning of Acts, so again will he descend. He's returning. What will happen when he returns? It says the dead in Christ will rise. Then we who are alive, who are left, will be caught up together with him in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. No, time for this. This is not like the Left Behind series kind of rapture thing as we were all taught uh, growing up. Uh, no, he doesn't halfway come back, pull us out, tribulation, and come back again all the way kind of thing. No, think the triumphal entry. He's returning. And when he does, he calls us up and out to join him. And then we triumphantly enter back in with the conquering king. He's not, uh, he's coming down here. We're not going up there. But the point of this wonderful passage, and uh, we miss an arguing over all the timing and specifics, so I want to ignore, just ignore what I just said, because I want you to get the main point. 1 Thessalonians 4, 17, all that, he returns, what's the result? We miss this. And so we will always be with the Lord. That's it. That's the future. That's the point of everything. That's what Paul wants more than anything. We will always be with the one whom it is of surpassing worth to know. And not only will we be with him, but we in some way will be like him. Back to Galatians 3.21. He will transform our lowly bodies to be like his glorious body. No more aches. No more pains, no more colds, no more cancers, no more aging, no more slowing down, no more tiredness, no more brokenness. Instead, transformation, glorification, wholeness, completeness, like the one that we most love, finally. And it's hard to even kind of begin to imagine what this will be like and to put it into words. But, but whatever it is, it will be awesome. Uh, actually, as the word awesome is supposed to mean, it will be awesome and amazing. Remember, we've had sanctification. We're progressively being made like Christ. This is glorification. We will finally be made perfectly like Christ. And the hope and consideration of that glorification at Christ's return has great sanctifying power for today. 1 John 3, 2 says, Beloved, we are God's children now. You are loved and you are God's child in Christ. And what we will be has not yet appeared. But we know that when he appears, we shall be like him. Why? How will we be like him? This is wonderful. Because, so there's, there's a connection. Here's, here's, here's the how. Because we shall see him as he is. In some way, I mean, I don't know, but in some way, the very sight of Christ is what transforms us. The sight finally unveiled with the flesh and the sin and all that God, and he comes in all his power and his glory. That very sight itself is a transforming sight. He is so great. He is so glorious that even just the sight of him as he is changes us. As we have so little idea 
of what this will be like that it's hard to even illustrate. I tried and I failed to do so. Uh, the best thing that I could come up with, because it's one of my favorite Disney scenes, again, two Disneys in one sermon, that's not good. Um, but one of the best things is the end of Beauty and the Beast. I tell my girls that Belle is the best princess because she loves books. Um, but the end, uh, the, end of, the end of the movie, uh, the beast is big, ugly, hulking uh, monster. He's cursed to look on the outside as his heart is on the inside. But then he meets Belle. He loves Belle. And not just insipid, vacuous, sentimental love, but love that demonstrates itself in service, in self-sacrificial, substitutionary service as he gives his life to save Belle's. Again, that's, that's the gospel. The one and true grand story. All of our other stories are just weak and pale imitations of that story, but they can't help but reflect that story because it's the story, the good story, the good news. But after the sacrifice, the flower, the last petal drops, he's dead, or so we think he's dead. But then the first thing, the music begins to change, right? the music transforms, then light begins to rain down. Uh, the beastly body is lifted into the air. It's bathed in light. And then not only is light shining on it from the outside, but light begins to radiate out from the inside. And then in the moment, in a twinkling of an eye, he is changed. He's, he's transformed. He has a new glorious body. As he lays down his life for the life of another, he's then transformed as the outside is now made to reflect the transformed and purified inside. But unlike the beast who is transformed by his own substitutionary sacrifice, we are transformed by the substitutionary sacrifice of another. Paul is saying we shall be like him. Our beastly bodies in some way will become like his glorious body when and because we shall finally see him as he is. We shall finally know him as we are already fully known. We are like the beast and then made perfect and made like Christ in just some unimaginable way. That's the future. That's what's coming in Christ. Well, what does that do for us now? How does that motivate us here? How does it help us live the Christian life? Well, John keeps going in 1 John 3. Verse 3, he says, when he appears, we shall be like him. So what? 3, and everyone who thus hopes in him purifies himself as he is pure. It, it, it's, it's the waiting for Christ that motivates the walking with Christ. It's the future that shapes the present. And Paul wants you to see and know that there is such a future in Christ. He's telling you to walk and to press on and to work and to strive. But he's saying, look, look at what's coming. Look at what waits for you. Look at the finish line. Look at the future. Look at the goal. It's infinitely better than anything else that you are pursuing right now. That thing will let you down. Look at what waits for you in Christ. And so Paul says, wait for him. And in the Greek, the word's not just wait. It's the word wait with a prefix on the front, which means eagerly await, anticipate, long for, right? We looked forward to our vacation for like two months. And whatever that thing is that gets ahead for you and that you look forward to and you long for and you work towards, Paul says, do that for the return of Christ. Right? Be honest with yourself. I, I struggle with this sometimes. 
What feeling are you filled with at the thought of the return of Christ? If you actually consider Christ's return, what does that fill you with? Remember a long time ago it was, I'd really like to get married first, but I'd really like to have kids uh, first, right? Because in my mind, these things were better than this thing. Paul's saying this thing is better than all the things. Do we look forward to it in that way? Look at the feelings that fill Paul with thoughts of the return of Christ. Look at how he describes him. Four names. Paul's just starting to overflow here at the end. Savior, Lord, Jesus, Christ. Look at the adjectives. Lowly body to glorious body. Look at the awe at the power of his master to subject all things to himself. Paul is passionate about the return of the one he most loves. And he is passionate that those he loves also be passionate about the return of the one he most loves. And here's his application. Last thing. Look at 4.1 and we're done. Therefore, in light of all that, my brothers, whom I love and long for, my joy and crown, stand firm, thus in the Lord, my beloved. Yes, I love I love Paul. I want to imitate. I want to be like him. He's just used four names for his master. Now he uses six to describe his followers. Don't miss the warmth at the end here in verse one. Yes, there's a command. Yes, it's important. But don't miss the context of the command. Six distinct terms of endearment in one short verse. It's basically the whole verse. He can't help himself. He says, my brothers. Then he uses the same word that he uses again at the end, though the ESV obscures it. It basically says, my brothers, my beloved, my longed for, my joy, my crown. One more time for good measure, my beloved. See, brothers and sisters, I love you. And because I love you, I want what's best for you. And because what's best for you is Christ, stand firm. Wait for him. Cling to him. Love the one who is love incarnate. Love the one who has already first so perfectly loved you. He's saying imperfectly but passionately pursue him and do it together. Do it by watching those who pursue Christ. Doing it by wa- do it by watching those, watching out for those who pursue self. Uh, do it by living like Christ, by walking as citizens of heaven. And do it by waiting for Christ who will return from heaven. Brothers and sisters in Christ, you are his. And he loves you. And he is coming for you. He's coming for us. And it will be indescribably wonderful. So Paul wants you to be ready. He says, be ready by living for and pursuing the one who first pursued you. Live for him because he's already died for us. And he's coming back. That's the future that awaits. And let that future motivate the present. Let the waiting motivate the walking. That's how you imperfectly but passionately pursue Christ. If you would bow with me and let's close with a word of prayer. Father, we thank you for your grace. Thank you that you are so abundantly kind to us and generous and good and gracious to us. Father, forgive us for how quickly you forget that. Father, forgive us for how much of our lives we live without reference to you. 
Forgive us for how prone we are to pursue the things of the world. Father, I want to be less like the world and more like Jesus Christ. I want my daughters to not love the world, but to love Jesus Christ. I want my church to not love the world, but to love Jesus Christ. Father, help us, please. Use your word. Capture our attention. Capture our hearts. Father, show us our sin. Show us where we have been living for the world and pursuing the world. Father, encourage us and motivate us with a glimpse of the glory of Jesus Christ. Convince us that he's better than everything else. Convince us that there is no future in anything else but Jesus Christ. Convince us that knowing him is of surpassing worth. And we ask and we pray this in his name. Amen. Amen.